We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a It's time to tell you about something exciting, and that is the Burnley Boo Barn. That's right. When you need someone booed, there is no one better than the specialist down at the Burnley Boo Barn. Do you have an elderly person trying to cross the street but doing it too slowly? Call the Burnley Boo Barn. We can take care of it for you. Maybe there's someone suffering a serious injury or illness. The Burnley Boo Barn has all your boo needs covered. That's right. Whether you want to boo the young, the old, the injured and infirmed, or maybe just want to boo the average person, we have all kinds of booing. We can even throw in colorful Editions like you wanka and long boos like boo or short boos like boo not to be confused with the scary boo you would get from a ghost though of course this is serious booing for your serious booing needs so come on down to the burnley boo barn you can find us anytime burnley fc are playing for all your booing needs so come on down to the burnley boo barn boo this is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Uh, I hope you will consider giving some patronage to our our new sponsor there. I think um, you know if you have booing needs, they certainly uh, are the provider you want to look for. I, I think their expertise at booing is pretty self-evident. And so the next time uh, you're looking for a partner to fulfill your booing needs, I, I hope that you will consider the Burnley Boo Barn. Uh, having said that, look, it was a game... That left us feeling pretty cold. I think if you go back and rewatch it, which perhaps Clive and I will actually do, there may be some things in there 
that are more positive than we remember. Um, but all in all, I can totally understand why the mood is pretty sour, and now we have two weeks to wait until Arsenal draw their next game. Because apparently, and I'm not aware of this, I don't know if uh, anyone else on the pod is aware of this, and I will introduce them momentarily, uh, we are legally only permitted to draw games now. So that's an interesting development. And before I introduce uh, the podcast members, I will let you know that uh, Tim Stillman and I did a discussion about the Cedric Suarez and uh, Pablo Mari deals uh, uh, for patrons. We're going to have a rewatch this week. We're going to do a mailbag pod for patrons uh, during this two-week break. And so as we always say, you know, if you want to support us there, we would love to have you. And if you don't or can't, uh, we totally understand that as well. And it's no big deal. We just love having you listening to the pod uh, all together. So whatever the case may be, uh, we, we do appreciate having you here and there and everywhere. Well, not everywhere. There are certain places we wouldn't appreciate you ha- having you, but <laughs> I don't want to get into that. Pause on Twitter. Pause my pants. Little pause. Woo-hoo. Are there places you wouldn't appreciate having a listener? <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Clive's on Twitter. Clive, AFC, hello, Clive. Hello. Clive, you're an open-minded gentleman. I'm sure there's no place you wouldn't mind having a listener. Um, yeah, I'm cool. Cool. Yeah, All right. So moving on from that awkwardness uh, and the introduction uh, that was already longer than it needed to be, I think the first thing that I want to do Paul, is just kind of touch on the decisions that Mikel Arteta had to make in this game. And I think largely the focus is going to be on moving Martinelli to the right to bring Aubameyang back and play him on the left, nominally on the left. We can get into that a little bit. And Lacazette getting the number nine position back. So Pepe was dropped. And I think as we get further into this discussion, we'll probably talk about maybe it being pointed that he was dropped because he was also not used. Um... But I'm curious how you felt about this. I mean, it would have been harsh to drop Martinelli, given his performances. But we know that the right side is a more isolated side. Um, that we haven't been overlapping on the right with Bellerin the way we have with Saka on the left when, when Shaka drops in. And so, you know, I sort of wonder if Martinelli fits that kind of play. Big space player, you know, no one to exchange passes with, not as close to the box you know, if that suited him. I mean, certainly defensively, we know he can do the work, but would he provide the same threat uh, under those circumstances? And I'm not sure that he really did. And of course, there's a question of whether Lacazette has earned the right to just sort of be presumed to come back into that role. So for me, the front three was the talking point of the selection. And I'm curious how you felt about his decision to move Martinelli over there and drop Pepe. Um, yeah, I think there's another couple of names to add to the talking points. But well, I think certainly that's the Terraragonduzi main... thing, and, and and I'm sure we'll come on to that. But I, you know, yeah. I think ultimately, given the struggles yeah, yeah. we've had at the pointy end, yeah, yeah. you know, that's that's where the issues seem to lie right now. No, I agree. Uh, I think it's maybe instructive that the area that Pepe, as you so rightly pointed out, um, <clears throat> plays from, has often made him look somewhat isolated, and he struggled to get things going on his own. Um, I think Ozil spread himself around reasonably well to help out on both sides. And we, we've very often seen him in recent times just picking one side and sticking to it. Crystal Palace, he was on the right with Pepe and they didn't get any service. And the game straight after that, he switched to the left uh, to work with, in fact, Martinelli and uh, Saka, I think it was. Um, but in this game, he did move around. He did spread himself around. And the first 20 or something so minutes uh, were reasonably promising. Um, the overall selection felt like he was rewarding performances, that he picked Martinelli <clears throat> to play on the right because he wanted to pick Martinelli and play him more than <clears throat> he wanted Martinelli on the right. Uh, Pepe, I thought, did reasonably well at last game 
last game out, or at least not badly. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily look on it as he, he was pointedly looking to drop him. I, I hear what you say on him not even getting on off the bench, but I think that may be a consequence of a series of substitutions he thought would push us forward, getting Ozil off, replacing Saka, etc. Um, the Lacazette thing is just tough because Arteta is at a stage in terms of, I think he's he's dealing with psychology as well. This is a dangerous point of the season uh, for him with this team and to he needs to manage the personalities and the egos and the hierarchy as well as his preferred lineup. So uh, overall, I don't think this was a great game in particular for Arteta. And I don't think the selection did what we needed to do. Um, I think the Martinelli one, maybe it's just our conclusion now that he's better from the left for the time being. And and Pepe has maybe been doing better from the right than we thought, given how hard it is to get anything going there. Mm, Um, Good point. it, It wasn't... Martinelli was pretty busy when I went and looked at the numbers, dribbles, et cetera, et cetera. But he did definitely look like a guy running down cul-de-sacs to some degree. And that that's harsh on the lad. We all know he's only 18 and he's going to have up, up and down games. But maybe Pepe uh, has... You know, Bellerin, I think... I know Arsblog thought he had a very good game. So I kind of went back and repraised it. But I, I, I still kind of thought he was pretty quiet and... That was both in attacking and defense. I didn't think he was super aggressive and, and superimposed himself. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, Ozil, I think we have a few players, well, Lacazette's below form, Ozil's kind of in that. The place you don't want to be, be is like kind of good enough-ish. If you're bad, you get dropped and we get to replace you. But we've we have a few players that are like, we don't know if they're playing well enough or bad enough to drop them or replace them. So I think we've got three or four players that are just like meh at the moment, not not yeah. clearly bad enough to be dropped. Yeah, and I mean, look, I, I it's not that I think Pepe has been a, a superstar. You know, there's lies, damn lies in statistics, but I mean, Pepe has five goals and five assists this season, good enough to make him second on the team in assists, fourth on the team in, in goals. And I, I realize, look, that's, that's not world-beating numbers, but, you know, if you want to say... He has no end product. I mean, no end product is what you're getting from Lacazette and Ozil right now. They have no end product. Um, if you want to say, you know, well, he's not getting enough end product, I could say, well, his dribbling causes problems. Regardless of, you know, how well you think he's playing, I do think that right side forward position, as you point out, Paul, is a harder position inherently for us right now because we're not overlapping on that side, because we're holding Bellerin back a little bit. I mean, you can see it in touch maps and influence maps that Bellerin is the deeper of the fullbacks. Um, you know, and I think that that makes that right side a little more difficult. But Clive, I thought that the, this, yeah. is doing it for himself. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say, and I was going to sing it just that way. Uh, you beat me to it, Clive. Look, the the funny thing, I go back to my Twitter account sometimes and see what I was tweeting during the games. First of all, to see how uh, hysterical I got, because that's always fun. But in part because, not that it's necessarily accurate, but it reflects how I was feeling at a stage of the game, so I could sort of reconnect with where my head was at that point. And at the start of the game, I, I was feeling really good. I thought Ganduzi was doing really well, a player who I think has come in for criticism. But everything seemed to be working reasonably well at the start of the game. And what I thought was interesting, Burnley have a really weird tactic, or at least they did in this game. And they did a little bit against us in the home game too, I think. They pushed really high up to press us, but kept their defenders really, really deep 
towards to, to protect their goal. So when we broke the press, there are screenshots of Ozil with the ball at his feet. And all you can see is green grass. <laughs> There's like no Burnley players because the Burnley players occupied two zones. Our defensive third pressing us and their defensive third to protect their back. So there were, there were these really weird passages of play where we'd finally break the press and then just carry it all the way to their final third and not quite have an answer once we got there. And so it, it, it was a game that settled into a bizarre pattern of play, but I thought early on we did also find some ways to create chances. Aubameyang made two fantastic runs found by Shaka and Louise for two really good chances. I think the first one was missed dreadfully. The second one, I, I think a little harsh. Uh, Lacazette obviously found for a great header. He was also onside in one situation where he was given offside and shouldn't have been, and that could have been a dangerous opportunity. So all things being equal, I I felt we started well, and I just don't think you can overstate the impact of Saka's injury because so much of what we've tried to do in build-up and to be threatening since Arteta arrived, and you could argue it was true under Emery to some extent with Kolasinac, is is try to overload that left-hand side and and drop Shaka in and push Shaka up, and that was working. I mean, do you think that it's oversimplifying to suggest that for whatever problems we had in this game, they largely boil down to Saka losing his effectiveness after the injury and then having to come off and be replaced by a guy who just can't pose the same threat? Yeah, that, that's part of it. I think we were... Our plan B was exposed, right? So, basically... Uh, it, we were we were absolutely exposed by the fact that we lost our left side. But sometimes just you have to look at the game a bit more broadly. We've got a situation where Burnley do what we do. They have a left back called Taylor, and they have Dwight McNeil, who's the most dangerous wide attacker, and they overload on their left hand side. And so that for me was why Pepe wasn't playing because he's not a very good defender, and we had to protect Bellerin. Our best defender was. Clive, give the dog a treat, for God's sakes. He's a good dog. You're a good boy. What's his name? Her name? I got two. (laughs) Which one is that? Uh, They're both going. And I wish my son would come down. What what are their names? Uh, Willow and Lenny. You're good boys and girls, Willow and Lenny. No matter what Clive says, you deserve a treat. You're good. Okay. And so basically, Dwight Dwight McNeil and and Taylor are very good attacking. So we had to have our right side sorted out. So there you go. That's why Pepe wasn't playing. Could anybody on this podcast trust him to defend against those two players? I mean, is that, can can I just ask you a question though? In your mind, is that a little too adjacent to the Emery philosophy of of setting up your team first Ah, to nullify nullify their threat rather than emphasize our own? It's very interesting uh, about perception because that's exactly what he did in this game. And could you imagine uh, Emery doing this? And could you imagine the kickback for Emery picking Mustafi? Um, could you who, imagine who had a good game, by the way? Still, deserves credit for the game. We still persisted with um, you know Ozil and Lacazette away from home. You know, I mean, it, it's just football in the end. I mean, I'm very, very, very much encouraged about. And what Arteta's doing, and he's put some things in place that I didn't in, didn't even foresee, and massively encouraging. But when it comes down to it, we're talking about the same group of players, and you know my views. They they have limits, and those limits are being played out in front of us, and we're just not looking hard enough, right? So, and so the pattern of this game with with Saka, we lost him. We were flying. You're absolutely right, Elliot, about Urzel having. They let him have the ball. I mean, how bad is that, right? They let him have the ball. And for me, one of the biggest issues of our season has been not just our defensive frailties. I always look for cause and effect. 
the biggest part of being very consistent in saying this is our decision making and technical security in the top third because that was actually causing the NBA basketball games. Now what Arteta's put in place has blocked that off with the three and the two in front. We're not getting the overlap from two fullbacks, but we are getting player, you know, better security against the transition. The thing is that Burnley play almost like a non-league game. I mean, I'm involved in a non-league club, and their style of football is exactly what we see every single week in the Southern League. You get the ball, you go back to front, second ball football. You miss out in the midfield. If you do get in the midfield, you help it on into areas, and you pay percentages. You get people running into sides and corners. Jay Rodriguez and Chris Wood running into corners, stretching out. David Luiz and Mustafi, right? They did pretty well in those corners. But what happens is you drop back. You drop back, you drop back, you drop back. Once you drop back, they have you where they want you. They can now press on, put, oh, do I do their five attack, and actually overload and start putting crosses into the box. And so the key thing for us is to break out and have build-up. Two players absolutely critical to the build-up and security. Ozil and Lacazette didn't show, not secure not setting the play, not giving us first phase into second phase football. Once we're in second phase, we're in business, right? Because we're four on four at the back. But we're not. We're not smart enough. We're not clever enough. We push off the ball. We don't win our duels. We don't win our headers. We don't do anything long enough. That's why we're drawing football matches. And so you have to recognise that I'm sure Arteta knows it. We have to get away from our box. They know we have to get back into our box. When they When they have us in our box... We are still the same old weak as piss arsenal. Right? <laughs> we don't win our headers in the box. We don't defend crosses properly. That's who we are. And that's who we have been for years. Right? So and it comes I don't want to overreact because she's Burnley. Not everybody plays like Burnley. Right? So I felt he picked a team to try to counteract them, even to the point where Guendouzi was ahead of Shaq uh, Torreira for his height, even though he's the worst head in football in the history of mankind. So it's just the nature of the game. So going back to, you know, Saka's a massive part all of a sudden, but so's Taylor for them and so's Dwight McNeil for them. They loaded their left side. Now what we could have done, I felt, to react to the fact that we lost our left side was maybe think about a one-on-one individualist, a winger on the other side, and say, you know what, plan plan A's gone. I've got left back that's going to sit in his hole, so I need to affect them on both flanks to keep them pinned back. And we have a £72 million player sitting on the bench. He's quite good at one-on-ones, quite good at attracting people, but he didn't go that way. And I found that a little bit strange, but that's just my view on the Well, game. I, I'm going to say this, Clive. I mean, I, I can take your point that Martinelli was played to be more solid down the, the flank that they are more dangerous. If that was the case for 60 minutes or so, I think the choice not only not to start Pepe, but to not bring him on at all has to be seen as pointed. I don't, and and maybe oh, we'll, that's a debate for sure. Mate. Yeah. That's a debate. I mean, because again, the way the pattern of play was going and the way the game was developing, and especially given that we had a midfielder at left back and we, we clearly weren't going to be able to create the overloads on that side and, and threaten them on that side. We needed to emphasize the right side, and he brings Willock on for okay. Ozil, and then Enkedia is, in my estimation, a bad sub, a silly sub, a pointless sub late, and we can come on to that. But l- let's do this. Let's sort of can go... one little point? Yeah, please. Mm-hmm. Just one sure. little point. Just for general consumption, we have, a, we have the youngest manager in the league. He is not experienced in making sharp substitutions as yet. 
he's still learning that part. I think we've seen a trend of delayed substitutions. Would mm-hmm. that be fair to say? Yeah, and, and look, um, he, he's been burned. I mean, how many – can I just stop you for a second, Clive? Is this the third game since he's arrived where he's had to make an injury-enforced substitution yeah. at, at the back? So, I mean, that, that also does change the calculus of when you're going to make changes. to 10 men a couple of times. Yeah, yeah, right? so, so, so it's four um, games where his, his substitution calculus is totally thrown off, yeah. I just think it's one to note. We have to – We have to. Mm-hmm. for all the exciting well, things we've seen, we have to bite that one off, don't we, and say, you know what, he's still inexperienced. And by the way, we, we're not always got all the information. We're not always right, by the way, just sitting there in the, watching in our front rooms, right? So under the pressure of the game, it's it's a totally different ball game. So I'm, I'm willing to sort of say, okay, maybe there's something I don't know or maybe I have to give the guy a chance to actually learn the job. Yeah, and, and you know what? I mean, I think you made a really important point just about understanding – Maybe what Pepe's been up against trying to get things done from the right side too, or or, or maybe that was Paul that made that. <laughs> I apologize, Paul. But like, because Gabriel Martinelli completed nine passes, he was one of five on take-ons, dispossessed twice. Right? Um, he had one blocked shot in the whole game. Now he did have five tackles. He was five of eight on his tackles. He had an interception. He lost both his aerial duels. He did block across. So I mean, you know, he he did hustle and he did harry and he did some of the things that he can do defensively, but. I think it's interesting watching this golden god, this guy that we all know is going to be great and believe is great, and so I'm not taking anything away from him, go over to that flank where Pepe's doing his damnedest, I think, to to make something happen and see that easier said than done. It's it's not Pepe's the side that we're been emphasizing. doing it for himself. Exactly, Paul. And and I, I couldn't have said it better than that um, or sung it better than that. But, well, you know what? We're, we're, on, the, we're on the topic, so let's just do it right now and, instead of coming back to it. I mean... This is now a third manager. I mean, if you want to consider Jimberg's brief spell a management spell, but it was. So a third manager who has, for one reason or another, had a reluctance to use Pepe. I don't think you can watch what he's doing on the pitch and say, clearly, he needs to be dropped. I certainly think if you look at that bench and you're like, I'm going to bring on Willock and my last roll of the dice late is going to be in Kedia. I cannot get away from it being pointed. Your 72 million pound man is sitting on the bench. Um, you know, he's a set piece expert among other things and, and you're not bringing him on. I, I, I just think it is pointed. And so I, I think, you know, once again, unfortunately, we kind of have to ask the question, what is it, to what extent are you sympathetic with the idea of not using Pepe if it is in relation to things that are other than his performance on match day? You know, I, I'm dancing around it. If it is about practice, yeah. if it is about not being a good member of the group, if, if it is disciplinary in nature, I mean... Where do you fall on the spectrum of of sort of supporting this decision or being concerned by it? Um, Again, I think this one's a little bit more about Martinelli than Pepe. I think Martinelli had has been outstanding recently. But even the decision not to bring him on at all, then I mean, yeah, yeah, I I get that, and and I don't know. uh, The problem with that would be that you'd have to say there's really an issue there, but I don't think there's a. I think there's an issue, but it's not big enough that he's not going to bring him on. I think that was just how he read. He's got bigger concerns than than at, at that stage in a game than kind of sticking to some pre-planned. Mm. You know, why have him on the bench if you're not going to bring him on? Well, that, and to be fair, that, he has started in what like every game since he's been here, or, or all, almost all of them, I think. That was just where I was going to go. I'm yeah. just looking back at his games. He's. He's not only playing, he's playing for... It's not like he puts him on for 60 minutes and then yanks mm-hmm. him. Uh, if I look at the last, uh, well, five, four or five games, you know, he's playing 
90, 81, 90, uh, you know, his earliest game against uh, Man United was 62 minutes. Um, so the boy's been playing. Um, and I think this was more about, yeah, compared to Martinelli, it says uh, Martinelli's flag is flying a little higher at the moment, but then it would be from his last couple of performances. True. I think, I think it was a mistake not getting him on here. I think if you re- just read Pepe's body language over the months that he's been here, he's gone from looking a kind of isolated, sulky kid to becoming part of some really good wins under uh, and results or fight backs, uh, the 10-man fight back, um, that starts to get the camaraderie, the uh, uh, esprit de corps and all that shit, um, and start winding him into the team but he's clearly struggled a little bit to settle in to be feel part of things i mean he's had three managers now um so you could imagine it's going to take time but but i feel a lot better about him in the last month or so Uh, arteta had some cautionary comments to him early on but we haven't seen any of that since then i don't think um so i think it's a process he might take the whole of this season just to get truly settled. I think the expectations from his price tag don't do him any favors, but that's the world he chose to live in. So it is what it is. Uh, you know, uh, I'm with you. I think he's, his contribution is significant, but I don't think he's at the level he could or, or maybe should be um, if everything had gone smoothly and and the the path in had been well managed, etc. But not not too shocking. I think he could have made a difference in this game because, yes, he's had to do things for himself uh, in large part on the right wing. And this was a game we probably needed somebody to do something for themselves. Um, the story could have been quite different, of course, in this game had Saka stayed on, had we had uh, our boys put away shots early on. But I think actually this was likely to end up a draw no matter what we did in that first 20 minutes, given the number of chances they had. So uh, Pepe would have made a difference, and I think he should have come on. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I can't help but feel the same. And it'll be interesting to see what happens after the two-week break. And I mean, it is fair. We may be reading, or I say we. Why am I saying we? I'm the one saying it. I may be reading too much into the fact that he wasn't used in this game and sort of combining that with information from the Jumberg and, and Emery era to suggest that Pepe was being disciplined or was unfavored by Arteta when it may have just been circumstance. He only had two elective subs that he could make. One of them was Willick for Ozil, which, while I don't know that it worked, I can understand the the, the thought process behind it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe there there is nothing more to it than just circumstance. Um you know, it's weird because I don't know if you guys know this, but there was a rumor floating around. I saw it on Discord, and I was never really able to find the, the genesis of it, but that he was going to drop Pepe for Burnley. And this rumor actually came out, I think, even before the FA Cup game. So I kind of disregarded it. But now, given that it was out uh, and that it came true, obviously it sort of it sort of makes you scratch your head a little bit. Clive, I, I think it's it's tough, right? Like, I understand style-wise why Arteta feels he has to pick Lacazette. Because I'm not sure he has a center forward he can pick that he would feel comfortable trying to play the role that he has Lacazette playing. But it is just not happening for him, and not only not in front of goal, but I think even in the buildup, it's not 
It's not really happening for him. And I do realize he had an assist re- relatively recently and, and sort of a pre-assist if we want to give credit for that sort of stuff relatively recently. But it doesn't look like it's happening for him. He had the header he missed. He kicked the ground once, to be fair. I think there was good defensive play at the last minute as well. Um, and then, uh, you know, we had the one where he hit, his back was to goal and you just want him to swivel and hit it. And it took him like seven touches to, to try to turn. And, uh, and the shot was gone by that point. Kind of a uh, titanic turn, turning radius moment for him. So is Lacazette the the toughest choice that that Arteta has to make in the near future. I mean, Aubameyang had been getting closer to goal with Saka overlapping and getting into good scoring positions. He did, in fact, twice in the first half in this game. So maybe you don't consider it a big problem. But when Saka went off, Aubameyang got a bit wider. He was a bit more peripheral. And and Lacazette just doesn't look like he's ever going to score again. So is is that a hard decision that may be confronting Arteta very soon? Yeah, I think um, pre-season, I think we had a we had a guess of who was going to be our star player and who was going to be one that would um, potentially fall away. And I had a feeling for him. I, I watched him in the preseason and um, I didn't think he was moving very well. He had a subsequent ankle injury. And I just thought, you know what? He's one of those players that needs to be perfect physically. And when he's not, he can look quite small and lacks power and lacks speed over long distances. He's got powerful shooting. He can be quite mobile and aggressive, but he needs to be tip-top. The moment he has an injury, maybe he had an injury in his first season, He's not the same player. Injury in his third season, you know, he's he's not looking great. And he hasn't looked great. And away from home, he hasn't cracked it. He hasn't scored for over a year. So we have a problem. This away day problem that we know and spoken about. We have certain personalities that don't want to deliver away from home. And, I'm, I'm, you know, again, I, I, I think we're looking... We have issues across our team. But I, I do think when you look at a squad... You look at their transfer value, you look at their wages, you look at their productivity, performance and output. A lot of our money has been spent in the top half of the pitch. We're not scoring goals, we're not winning games, we're not retaining the ball, we're not threatening teams. Teams are letting our number 10 have it. Our number 10 has one assist in since the French Revolution. Yeah. We have problems. We have problems here. Aubameyang is covering. The moment Aubameyang doesn't fire, we don't win. You know, we so we have problems right in front of us. Some more spectacular problems are our defensive errors and our jogging midfielders when the when the spaces were too big, and so our eyes were drawn to these areas of the pitch. But I always have a saying in football: you're as good as your forwards, and our forwards are not doing it. As simple as that, and Lacazette is the is the, where the light is shining right now, and because we have potential other people that we want to see play, and statistically they're not he's not doing very well. So on all counts, on the natural biases we have to our favourite players, and are they being positioned correctly? <coughs> Elliot with a barrier. I mean, I'm watching him being. I think he's being wasted. I think we can categorically say we have we are wasting one of the best strikers in the league. It's as simple as that and that is classic Arsenal you buy two players within six months of each other put them against each other one can't do the other one's job so you waste the other one it's just rubbish right it's just it's just small time it's small teams in fact small teams wouldn't do this because they couldn't be able to afford to <laughs> they don't have the money to make pounds. the mistake <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> they're too exactly. broke to make that mistake and we are uh, we sit there with these debates amongst fans we debate when we all know deep down it's a poor choice in the first place. We should have bought a Bamiang in the summer. We 
You wouldn't have lost Giroud in January to get a Bamiyang in January. That's poor recruitment. We didn't quite want to pay the money for Bamiyang. We should have done. We buy Lacazette, who for me is, was an okay player, but we overpaid for him. We then lose Giroud, comes back and bites us and does us out of the Europa League final. <laughs> I mean, how you couldn't write this stuff, right? You just couldn't write this stuff. So losing Giroud costs us 50 million quid, potentially. I'm not saying that's the only thing, but the number of things that happened. I mean, you just you just can't you just can't believe where we found ourselves. And where we found ourselves is halfway up the league in the beginning of February with six wins under our belt. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm not being negative. But also the, the same number of lot, or you know, the second fewest losses, right, in the league, or something like yeah, that. So it's exactly, it's just bizarre. Exactly. Uh, look, it's a bizarre season that we can't. We, we hasn't happened for a hundred years, right? So none of us can say we've seen it before. I mean, just it's just it's just ridiculous. But I do think just going back to to Lacazette decision, and I, I think James wrote an article. I only saw the headline. He wrote an article for Athletic today, and it's about we have choices to make. And it's a shame we're making these choices while they're all here being paid and with contracts. These choices should have been made before we bought them. Much more strategic on buying and selling. If we were smart, we should have sold Lacazette in the summer. We should have sold him then and then reinvested that money into a defensive target of stature while adding Pepe and making sure we had another forward just to keep us going. But we didn't. We wait, we wait, we wait. Now in a situation where Bamiyang's in his last year, potentially in a few months' time. Like I said, I think it's got a year and a half, I don't know, maybe two years in the summer. We're not strong again. We're weak. And um, we're just not thinking smart strategically when it comes to recruitment and um, mm. and strategic use of our best assets, which is even more criminal. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the one thing that Arteta sort of has going for him is that given that the league is such a shit show, he can experiment. He experimented with Martinelli right, to his credit. That didn't work. I think the next experiment is going to have to be getting Aubameyang at center forward and taking Lacazette out of the squad a little bit. And I would even surmise that when Emery went through the only period of his time at the club that was good, which was roughly February, March of last season, um, we were playing with Aubameyang through the middle. Uh, now, to be fair, we were also playing with Ramsey, who was in great form in, in that moment. So we don't really have anyone to ape that role. But He's going to have to get creative. He might have to get creative with Ozil's role and Lacazette's role. I mean, Paul, you want to add to that? Is it, Are those yeah. the two positions where Arteta's going to have to start to go into the lab and, and do some footballing al- alchemy? Yeah. The the only problem with this exp- – I agree with everything you said. The problem with the experimentation is you'll have more than one Burnley at that point. This was a game where we were kind of off the boil. And the problem once you start farting around and sending out the message to the team – that uh, the league doesn't matter and we're experimenting is that you just lose that three or four or five percent against your Burnleys. Now, I'm not against what you say, but it's it's a difficult balance for a manager to experiment and still tell everybody we're serious about the league. And when you start being bad in the league, you'll start being bad in the Europa League. So, yeah, but to be fair, like putting Aubameyang <laughs> at center forward isn't an experiment like, you know, here's a 17-year-old. No, no. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like it's not yeah, yeah. It's not going to transmit that you're not trying. You know? Granted. Yeah. No, the Aubameyang thing might make it look like you were more serious in effect. It, it, this is a tricky game in a sense in that Aubameyang had four great opportunities some one of them in particular created by Lacazette so while I I tend to agree that you know Lacazette's just off the boil um 
this wouldn't be the this is a game you could make the case that the one person this game worked for till we had all those other problems with i mean his his opportunities were early on as well had we kept the overall shape and dyna- dynamism and Saka stayed on or we had a capable replacement on one of the wings to compensate for it, it doesn't have to be on the left side hey bring on somebody on the right side who can attack um <clears throat> that maybe this you know maybe this was a case in point where even when Lacazette isn't performing uh Aubameyang can shine because he had four gems uh, 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 and the you know that mechanism we've talked about with Luis and Chaka from the back putting balls in I mean Jesus this game could have had a different story. Yeah, and you make an interesting and, point, Paul, just real quick, which is that it's not Lacazette's inclusion that, that made this game go poorly for Aubameyang. It was Saka's withdrawal that ultimately led to Aubameyang being more peripheral. Yeah, you could you could make that case. It's a shame that, that an 18-year-old who's playing out of position at left back was the reason it all fell apart. Well, it's because you, you push that that player forward and Aubameyang naturally gets closer to the box. And I think once once he was removed and there was no one overlapping on the left, Aubameyang became more of a true winger, which is when, yeah, I mean, what we don't want. Amazingly, it seemed to change everything. I, I, the other point I'd like to lob in yeah, please. was just I had made a note a month, a month and a half ago when Tim was depressing us all with the when a player's had an injury in preseason or just after the start of preseason. I think Laka was actually carrying his injury from preseason into the the first game or two before he had to drop out with his ankle thing. He says those players never have a good season, and I'm like, God, that's depressing. Note to mental self: check in a few months later, and here we are. He's he's hit a plateau. He, he now must be basically fit. Um, and he just doesn't seem to be able to bust He's through. He's not exploding. It, yeah, I, no. you know the great example no, that no pop. Yeah. Uh, Paul was where he got the ball back to goal in the box and took those six touches I talked about trying to swivel and turn, and like maybe I'm just manufacturing this out of thin air, but I do feel like last season he plants a foot, he swivels on that, and he hits it. Um, and if you remember the move I'm talking about specifically, I mean, yep. he, he's what, eight yards out, nine yards out, and he yep. just can't get himself turned to hit the ball. So I, I, I totally agree that he, he's not playing with that kind of power. So then well, let, let's shift a little bit further back um, back in the pitch and, and to midfield. And I do think that there there's an argument that, okay, your strikers can miss chances, that can happen, but that what's not working right now is the midfield. Um, you know, at the start of the game, I, I felt that it was going all right. I thought the Chaka and, and Ganduzi were actually doing relatively well together, switching positions, one dropping, one going forward. Ganduzi did a good job early on dropping in a few times and collecting the ball. We played out from the back really well early on. I mean, if you really watch that game again for the first 20 minutes or so, we played right from the back from Leno, through the defenders, into Ganduzi or Shaka, turning out from under pressure, getting it to Ozil and carrying it up the pitch. We did that really well a couple of times. You know, it's easy to say that, like, Aubameyang suffered from from Shaka having to move to left back. I thought Ganduzi really did too. Um, Clive, when, when it was Ganduzi and Torreira... The midfield just felt very one-dimensional and didn't work. And I, I'm curious to get your take on why that might have been and, and what what the change might have been in the pattern of play that had such an impact on our midfield um, once Torreira came on. I, I think it's all about when you're a midfielder, you need to have running targets, don't you, dear? And uh, I didn't think we had that. I think we had that when Saka was on. 
uh, on the right-hand side. We didn't really have a run-through line um, outlet, and I think they were being pushed back on the right hand on our right-hand side. I felt we had to build up through Azul Lacazette, and they didn't show feet enough, didn't work hard enough. When they did, they didn't retain it. And so I didn't think we had an, another option. We don't, from midfield, we don't empty midfield anymore. That's not how we play, and that's that's fine by me, by the way. But you'd like to think we can carry the ball to the danger area, which we don't have players that can do that. We have players that pass the ball. We don't have players that can carry the ball, right? Next phase, notes 2021, right? When people push you back, can you step your man and drive 20 yards? Hence why I think he brought on Willock for that drive. Started a little bit deeper, drove him behind. I thought he did quite well when he came on. And I felt he challenged him, spin the ball out into wide areas, second phase. That's what we were after. We were after second phase. And that's what we couldn't get. So I don't look at the individual so much. I think... What you started to see was, I, I thought Torreira looked a bit slow to get to the the warmth of the game. Sometimes you come as a sub, it's quite difficult to get to the pace of the game. And he took a while to get going. I think he got there later on. Um, when we get this sort of situation, when you get these situations where Guendouzi, whose natural personality is to save the day for everybody, when he sees that we're not looking so smooth, what he does, he takes a lot of responsibility on himself. In the previous game, I thought he did it beautifully and, and saw us through the end. In this game, he tried to do it by having more touches as he progressed the ball because he could see what was missing. He needed to drive, he needed to create different angles, he needed to wait for the build-up to reappear. So by having the ball, moving it to the side, hoping the angle would show it wasn't there, you end up playing the ball to somebody was marked, we lose it, transition into wide areas, cross, Burnley put in nearly 40 crosses, for God's sake. That's incredible. I don't know how we got away with nil. Right, so so I think it's just a breakdown. And I, again, it's a breakdown because our build-up is poor. Um, I know I keep saying it, that's a, but it really is the number one thing. When we're good, it's when the build-up is good. When we're bad, it's when we transition, when we break down. And it's then everything else we have a look at. And it's a byproduct of that. Right, so and our ability to vary our build-up from the base of our team is not very good. Hence why sometimes we use David Luiz just to go straight past the midfield and go in behind. That looks quite nice. This is where the value of centre-backs that can build up passing, I think, can become more important. I see the future of Arsenal, they're buying a, buying a true number six who can sit there, but centre-backs can do that passing as well as a number six. And I think we need to have carrying eights. People that can take the ball from the middle of the pitch and threaten people and allow people to double up in wide areas because you're dragging people into you. And that's just the way we have to go. So what we have is what we have right now with this team. I really credit the Arteta for getting the most out of this group. My one criticism would be in this game was our reaction to losing plan A maybe wasn't quite sharp enough. And I would have done something different without the information. But I don't see anything in midfield that we could have done due to the profile of those players that we actually had. I don't think on this day we could have afforded a Sabias who would have thought Burnley is some sort of crazy place in, in, in near Earth somewhere. Or he would have thought, where am I? You know, So don't bring him on in this scenario because we're just going to lose him, right? So um, so he could, this is what he could do on this day. And maybe the game wasn't won for us because we were inefficient, didn't quite take enough care in the first 25 minutes when we looked very, very good. Yeah, I think and part of... Yeah, could, go ahead, Paul. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I just want to add to Clive's point on bringing Willock on and bringing runners for Ganduzi. We had basically one shot until Willock came on in the second half. And after Willock came on, we had another five, six shots, which still isn't brilliant. But we were clearly blocked up till we got that, had a more dynamic runner on there, albeit the, the limited but uh, willing Willock. Yeah, I, I mean, look, you know, our best period of the game was clearly early on um, when we had the the plan A. And I, I, I think, in fairness, this is the first time since Arteta arrived where I had, you know, and I tweeted this, by the way, I said, you know, it's the first game since Arteta got here where I think there's real questions about decisions he made. That doesn't mean I think he's shit or I don't back him or I'm not excited. You know, people are so quick to to get worried if you want to analyze something. And I just think for the first time, he made some decisions that I just don't think worked. And once again, I feel for him because it is a situation where an injury-enforced change disrupts the pattern of playing the game plan. I mean, he he has lost central defenders twice mid-game to injury, a striker once to red card, and now the most important wide player, you could argue, for how we want to attack mid-game as well. So, I mean, those are difficult situations for any coach to handle in the middle of the game, and I don't think it was helped, let's just say it, by the fact that Maitland-Niles wasn't on the bench, because while Maitland-Niles is not a natural fullback and definitely not a natural leftback, he can go do some of that, um, and I just don't think Shaka can. I mean, can Shaka do it defensively? He can sort of kind of do it. He can't provide the overlap. He can't provide the running up and down that wing, so you just lose that depth. Um, and, and I think we really suffered for it. And the obvious solution for me would have been to bring on Pepe, uh, let Bellerin overlap a little, sit Shaq a deeper, just flip the sides, try to do a little bit more up that wing. I don't think we did that. And also, some of this is Burnley. I mean, Burnley fouled a lot. We fouled a lot. The game got really broken up. They had a lot of free kicks, corner kicks, set pieces. Um, you know, they played long ball a lot. In the breakdown, Adrian Clark's breakdown, which someone kind of hilariously um, tweeted at me today and said, here's your podcast. <laughs> um uh, you know, he emphasized that he felt our pressing from the front wasn't intense enough and that allowed them to play those long balls, that they won the first ball and were, were quicker to the second ball and that caused us all kinds of problems. Absolutely. But, you know, their choice to bypass midfield also meant that guys like Ganduzi, you know, Clive, you talk about Ganduzi wanting to solve all the problems and, and rescue everyone. There just wasn't a lot for the midfielders to do. You know, Torreira, I think part of the problem with having Torreira on is Torreira is not the most progressive player, but he can he can help your attack by winning the ball off guys and starting the transition. There's nowhere for him to win the ball because it was just going over him. You know, when the yeah, ball no goes over the midfield, him. what the hell do you need a, a, a terrier for? You know what I mean? Um, well, he's, he's the only option we had, really, wasn't he? Right? So, oh, of course. I'm not saying it's the wrong choice. It's just nothing for him to do. <laughs> yeah. And, and what he could do was just double up on fullbacks when people pushed into yeah. wide areas. Yeah. And that's all he could do was to help out his wide areas to try to help to stop the crosses. But I'm not sure we did that very well. And I think that's the weakness of ours, actually. And while we were while you were talking there, I was just looking back on the last few games. We we let a lot of crosses into our box. We really do. I don't think we're aggressive enough to stop crosses. We rely on our goalkeeper and central defenders to head the ball away. Eventually, you will get done. I mean, Leicester let 20, 21 crosses from Burnley the other week. We've done 39 crosses we let Burnley have. Mm. And that's 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 not good, right? That's too many. And I, I think we're risking what really nearly happened, right? We're risking you let people in your box, bad things happen, as simple as that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, so, Paul, I, th- I think 
then what we really need to do is talk a little bit about Mesut Ozil because, you know, if you look at this game from the standpoint of, you know, what what where we failed and, and what went wrong, I think Clive made a really important point about, you know, you judge a team by the front line, by the strikers, you know, whatever the, the more articulate and, and erudite expression that was. But, yeah, look, Arteta's improved us defensively, I think. And we got away with it a little bit in this game, admittedly. But, you know, it is still the case that the way Arsenal Football Club is built is to win games at the front. And you need to create chances and take some of them. We did create some chances, but arguably not enough. And and I would say that the part of the pitch where you need the most precision is the final third, right? The spaces are smaller. The openings are smaller. The passes have to be more precise. Teams in general are going to complete lower percentages of passes in their final third and much lower percentages of passes in the penalty area for obvious reasons. And that's where I think Mesut Ozil comes in. Paul, I just feel that he's still finding pockets of space. He's still popping up and finding those pockets. He's just not nearly as precise as he once was. Um, you know, and it's not that he's not completing passes, just he's he's the weight on them isn't quite right. The the timing isn't early enough. He's forcing players to have to stop and come back to balls. There was one it reminded me a little of the pass that Willick played to start the second goal against Bournemouth. You know the one I'm talking about? Like one of those sort of big uh, curling diagonals out to the wing. And yeah. he just, he passed it right to a defender when yeah. it's a pass that I think would have been easy to make. I, I just think that while the the meme, the, the sort of trope about Ozil is he doesn't work hard enough, he doesn't run enough, and that certainly he could have closed down more in this game, you you tolerate that because of his precision in the final third, and I, I think what we're seeing from Mesut Ozil is he still has the eye, he still finds the space, but the execution just isn't there like it was, and for that reason, I think he becomes droppable. Do you think that's a fair assessment of, of where he's at? Uh, I do. Um, Ozil's a tough one for me because I, I just really love the guy as in terms of his footballing. I quite like him as a person as well, but we'll, we'll move that to one side. I'll try not to let that influence me. Um, he's just a little off. He's he doesn't have the same dynamism physically he had before, though he's still fast, he's still mobile, he still does the work. Um, he seems a little off, even from himself, uh, like a month or so ago. He seemed to have uh, wind under his wings uh, when Arteta reintroduced him, but I think uh, he's encountering those frustrations of playing for Arsenal um, and us not being the dynamic possession attacking team uh, that we aspire to be. And it always impacts him a little bit and he gets overly frustrated to the point where he starts bringing his performances down. Um, we still have the challenge. We don't really have a great way of playing without him uh, in terms of creativity. So we end up in that worst place possible of him not being terrible but not being good enough. Um, you, you, I think you're right that his he, his his calibration's a little bit off at the moment, and I think it's because he's banging his head against a wall a little bit. He just he's not we're not doing well enough. He's not doing well enough within that team. Um, and Ozil frustrated is the worst kind of Ozil there is. Um, I think as well from a player like that, you want some threat. You want some ability to make something happen on their own. Um, at least recently, 
in the last couple of games, he's taken a couple of shots that they almost hit in the face as, holy shit, Ozil's he, he taking He took a, a terrible shot. shot in this game, but the irony yeah. is that it deflected into a really dangerous area, yeah. which is an argument for why you need those secondary runners to take some shots sometimes. Yeah, but it's almost like he said to himself, I'm going to take a pop every game because my manager told me to take a pop every game. Mm. Um, it, it's kind of stood out, but it also stands out that he of himself isn't creating any wonder moments. There's no Kevin De Bruyne beats three people and sets it up. He, he, he'll he pick a pass if it's on, and even that the calibration's off a little bit, but assuming he's calibrated, he'll pick a pass if it's on, he'll make stuff, he'll help us build play, help us counterattack. Um, that's all just a little off at the moment, but he won't do anything that wasn't there. He except in the Ozil sense of he'll see a pass, nobody else will. But he, he won't make a play happen uh, as he would have when he was younger, more dynamic. Or as you see, another, you know, that we've gone away from these fully creative number 10s. Um, you, you can just about live with them when they do something special on a regular basis. He's not, outside of just being a, a fairly good number 10, he's not doing anything special for us. And it's a it's one more cost in a team where we can't accumulate any more ca- costs on top of lack on top of Pepe not being world class just pretty good on top of you know take your pick yeah yeah I mean and it is difficult think, yeah you go ahead please I I think with Özil what he's um we, we he's fading we all know that we can all read right? and by the so, way that like like that's normal That's for okay. someone 31 going on 32 yeah i mean th- that happens that you expect that yeah. to happen you know but because of his uniqueness as a footballer because of his you know his top game is almost beyond our limits if you see what i mean beyond our minds historically when he plays well it's beyond anything that we've seen from that type of player. It's just amazing when he dictates the game. So that stays in our memories. But what we're not realising since he signed the contract is he's created a new normal for him. And the new normal is three or four bad games, average games, one or two okay ones, when he does something that's nearly nice or something that's quite nice. And because we have these big memories of the past... We try to we try to link them all together. We'll actually just judge what other people are doing. I think this game was a massive insult for Ozil because Burnley decided not to mark him. Yeah, they left him on. And that, <laughs> and that is a, that is. And I always you always heard me say this: the other team tells you about yourself. They didn't mark him. They thought we can't leave Aubameyang. We can't leave these guys. We can make sure we can block off the box. But we're going to let Ozil have it because he's not going to shoot. He's only going to pass slowly out to wide areas. We can get there. We can travel. We can travel as the ball's traveling. He's not going to hurt us down the middle. Let him have it. Press the others. Press them when we can. Hurt them. Physical with them. We'll let him have it because we think we can get around. We think we can recover. Arsenal can't head in the box anyway. He's not going to really cut through people with one, two. He doesn't do it anymore. He's a pass before that. And so the biggest insult is when a team lets you have the ball. So forget what I think. No, you people probably know what I think, but it doesn't matter. Um, this is what other teams are doing. Mm. They're telling they're telling me and telling all of us that the threat, particularly away from home, let's be honest, away from home is the major issue. Just isn't there. Simple as that. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and I think then the question becomes how do you how do you solve the problem? Because I just said that one of the most important things in the final third is precision. With Joe Willick, you get a little more running and a willingness to shoot. I think we don't really talk about it much because he hasn't played a ton and he hasn't scored a bunch. But Willick will shoot. He likes. I mean, he, he took a pretty wild shot in this game to be fair. Um, but I don't think he has the precision with his passing, so we oh, lose some yeah. control. I mean, because because here's the thing, right? When we took Ozil off, we lost control. We we. This was a game where I think if you want to be critical of anything in this game, my biggest criticism of us in this game is just how little control we had, how few periods of sustained possession we had up the pitch. You know, if you think about the periods where we've been bad since Arteta arrived, you know, the the struggles we had against Leeds, um, the, the bad period we had against Palace, some of the bad parts of this game, it's where we got caught deeper in our, you know, in our own defensive third, in our own half, trying to play from areas where we don't want to play. Where have we been good? When we've been able to sustain some possession in the attacking half. And what little we were able to do from that standpoint, I thought we did when Ozil was on the pitch, and less so when Willock was on. So there, there are those trade-offs. He does not have that precision yet. I do think, you know, we talked about alchemy earlier. Saka, Pepe, Martinelli, are any of these guys, again, not the most precise players, certainly, but from an end product standpoint, from a threat standpoint, do you want to put those kinds of athletic um, shooting end product oriented players into that position? I'd be curious to see him try something different, especially if he's going to go away from Lacazette. You know, look, at the end of the day, you guys, players who play in the attacking third have to be judged on their end product at some point. Aubameyang had a bad game by his standards. He had good chances and he didn't convert them. The reason we're fine with Aubameyang is... 25 times a league season, he converts them. And for that, you'll leave him on the pitch. Mesut Ozil is a player who you're supposed to leave on the pitch because 13, 14, 15 times a season, he's going to assist a goal and seven, eight times he's going to score a goal, whatever the heck, you know, heck number of goals he's going to score. He's scoring zero goals. And I think his entire assist total across all competitions this season is two. So that's just not enough. And I know that is reductive analysis, but at some level at the pointy end, if you got two assists and no goals, your place is under threat. Um, Clive, I'm going to ask you about the shape we should have done in just a moment. Okay. Let me just uh, squeeze Paul in here for, for one second. Um, so Paul, you know, I think the question that a lot of people are asking about Arteta in the wake of this game to some extent is just about his substitution patterns. And we've discussed at length, or at least touched on at length, the unfairness of the situation he's been put in in a few games where we're now talking four games where he says enforced substitution or certainly enforced substitution circumstance, if you want to call that the Obama, however you want to refer to the Obama Yang red card. Um, so we had that again in this game. But do you think he was late with his substitutions? And in particular, that sort of last Enkedia for Lacazette one, which felt really pointless and and sort of lacking authority. I'm of the opinion that one of the hardest things for a young manager to do is embrace the philosophy that draws are as bad as losses. Draws are as bad as losses. You've got to internalize it and you've got to believe it. And even if in his core, Arteta believes it, I still think he manages a little bit with the fear of turning a draw into a loss instead of the courage of turning a draw into a win. Do you think maybe there's some of that? Because the substitutions in this game, to me, felt a little too much like not wanting to go for the win at the at the expense of the point. Yeah. Um, I know what you mean about draws are as bad as losses, but also they're not. 
Especially well, well, they the- are, but but even putting aside that they are because they are. Um, let me just say, like, he could have put Pepe on for Torreira, for yep. example, and said, you know what? They're bypassing the midfield. I don't need my terrier. Fuck it, I'm going for the win. Like, like, well, it's Arsene Wenger that, had an ability on- to just throw on all the strikers. You know what I mean? He just, yeah, he-, he just did. He could have brought on Torreira as well. I mean, he had that sub, as you said. Well, for- he did. He did bring on Torreira. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, he had Enketia come on at 90 minutes. He could have brought on Pepe yeah. mm-hmm. at 45 or any moment after that. I, You know, the, the other one he was questioned on was keeping Sack on for a while, um, which I think was a bad call on his part and turned out that way in hindsight. But you can see why he didn't want to go to his alternate, which was Chaka, because it just destroyed the team structure. Yeah. His whole plan was gone at that stage. Um, and you now had a bunch of people who weren't supposed to be on there or playing outside of their position. But yeah, the big one was not bringing on Pepe any time after 45 minutes or certainly from 60 minutes onwards when he was deciding he was going to take apart his shape. Um, I don't quite get it. I don't know why he didn't do it. I don't. Uh, I suspect it was maybe the fact that his most uh, active coverer of fullbacks was Martinelli and there was a certain amount of swapping wings with the two guys we saw Bamiyang pop over to the right maybe Martinelli was helping Chaka a little bit but mostly Martinelli stuck on the right hand side uh, Bellerin was tucking into midfield a lot so I think there was just a lot back to the earlier conversation it was a bit of Emery in that we decided to make sure uh, to your point we didn't leave ourselves exposed and it led us into this situation where the most likely result for us was going to be a draw. Mm-hmm. And I guess he lost confidence in what he was seeing out there, and he thought Pepe was going to make us less stable, not more stable. Um, I think it's the wrong call, but you can understand, looking at the the play, a manager saying, sensing that we're in trouble, because uh, we were, and we just didn't seem to... Um, you mentioned Adrian Clark and the breakdown. I mean, the, the crosses coming in, the lack of intensity to close it down, and that was with Martinelli and Bellerin on that side. He might have looked at that and not concluded the one thing we needed right then was Pepe, um, but that's what we needed if we were going for the win. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, look, again, I, I know I'm being intentionally argumentative and, and a bit ironic as well, but, like, draws and losses are the same in my point in my mind in the sense that, like, you have to accept the statistical reality that the benefit of three points for a win is so powerful in the face of one point for a draw that you have to always go for the win. And I mean, you you need look no further than where we are on the table as the team with the second fewest losses and we are 10th. I'm just guessing that psychologically, while I agree with you across the course of a season or a confident manager within a confident team, an un, a, a manager trying to establish himself and trying to make sure he doesn't go into any kind of tailspin, you can imagine why a draw is way ahead I, I of a I can, loss. and that's why I think these guys get paid a lot of money and why it's a really hard job is you have to fight that instinct, I think, and go for that win because ultimately if you're going to achieve your goals, that's what it's going to take. I mean, I think the margins have gotten so fine. I mean, look at the results week in, week out. Teams, yeah. you know, United losing, Chelsea losing, Arsenal you know, or drawing, you know, whatever it is, Arsenal dropping points. So many teams dropping points, not getting full points week in, week out. The margins have gotten so fine in this league. And, and so I do think 
it, it makes the reward for getting those three points even bigger. Um, and I think what it takes from a manager to top club now is having, you know, the courage to really go for it. And I realize I say this in a weekend where City did go for it against Spurs and got done two nil, but you know, you just got a thin hope. line between courage and stupidity, yeah. though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a fine line between clever and stupid. So, Clive, just as a final thought on the game before I ask, just really quick question about Maitland Niles and the Cedric Suarez deal is. Um, how would you have changed the shape? I mean, what would your solution have been to this sort of unique, in a way, problem that that Burnley posed? I mean, parts of this game, to me, reminded me of playing Sam Allardyce's Bolton, just, you know, shitty booing fans and long balls and elbows everywhere and just a, a bad pitch and the whole nine yards. How how would you have reacted to the shape-wise? Yeah, so for me, it's most of the way it's the way to sorry, I'm just stumbling there. The way to look at it, it, it is, happens. Um, happens to Arsenal. Is it's, it's a it's a first ball, second ball game, right? So they they threaten you with the first ball. You have to win it. Then they double threat you with the second ball, second phased wide areas cross. That's their game. When they get it in midfield, they hook it on, help it on into channels, chase after, put under pressure, get a throw in, restart, go again, hook it into the box. First ball, second ball, right? So, so that's what you're forced to do. So, what you need to try to do to get to counteract that is be really aggressive. You're not going to be really aggressive in stopping crosses. Be really aggressive in your where you hold your line of centre backs. So, as the ball's been set in wide areas for the first time cross, you've got to leave your box. We didn't do that a lot. We stayed in our box quite a lot. We did quite well defending, but I didn't like where we defended from. They were too close to our six-yard box. That's one thing. Systemically, what I would have done, I'd have gone four, three, three. I'd have kept three up, three in. The three in are there for my second balls, right? And to get out to wide areas, double up. And also, you have three in that can work up and down the pitch. So when I would actually go back to front, hit our front men, try to get them to keep five back, hit our front men to get them to think about our three men in the line. Uh, to set the play and us to play second phase football. So I would have kept three up. And what we did, we messed about too much with number 10s in midfield that were getting bullied and not, re- and, and not sorry, that's the wrong phrase, but ineffective, not working hard enough to show their feet. Mm. So we weren't getting enough from our build-up and we weren't pinning anybody back. Do you see what I mean? Mm. So this is a major challenge for us. So I would have gone three up for you and... And I would have made sure that we put them into areas where they weren't so good. They're fantastic at blocking shots, blocking um, efforts when strikers turning, by the way. The way they go and engage a distance to the ball really well, really good at that. But what they weren't so good at was when we attacked them from wide areas going inward. And I felt we could have had two solid wide players in, say, Martinelli and Pepe, with a bad reaction in the middle, late in the game, just to make them think about doubling up into wide areas, which would have took numbers away from our area, which would have took the danger away from the second ball. I would have made it a far more of a competition that we could have handled. So, hey, lessons. Burnley's a different game to almost every other game we play. Maybe not. I think even Sheffield United are more sophisticated. Mm. Yeah. Burnley is a, it's, it's a unique game. So, although it's interesting to watch tactically, interesting to watch how we reacted or didn't react, but I'm not going to go massively overboard about the game. But what we are seeing, we are seeing what I ex- totally expected us to see. I think ropes are being handed out for players to hang themselves. That's what I think is happening. I, it so feels like if that's that. the case, Clive, then the smart thing to do 
is to not hang yourself. Like if someone hands me a rope, I'm definitely not going to hang myself with it. I'm just saying. Feel yeah, like, absolutely. You know, but in the end, the manager's given <laughs> real a lot of faith to certain people, isn't he? He's giving faith to certain people. And you either take the chance or you don't. Yeah. yeah tell that, that to David Carradine, though. Oh, Jesus. Um, I, I Honestly, I'm not processing or, or um, <laughs> connecting with that reference at the moment. And even with that being true, I can already presume that we're going to get blowback after the podcast about it. So oy, oy. I, I just want to be clear. I, I, I don't know what that's a reference to. And please send the blowback to pause in my pants. Um, so, Paul, as we wrap up here, I mean, one of the things that maybe could have made this game a little different uh, would have been bringing on Maitland Niles to replace Saka and going slightly more like for like in that you'd be using a, a player out of position, much like Saka, but someone who who has been playing fullback a bit and you can keep Shaka in a role that I think has been really influential for us. He didn't opt to do that in part because he didn't have Maitland Niles in the team. Now, ironically, Tim has just tweeted out a link to an article he wrote about why the Cedric Suarez deal possibly spells the beginning of the end for Ainsley Maitland Niles' Arsenal career. There was speculation that the Suarez signing opened the door for Maitland Niles to be a midfielder. I don't see that remotely being the case. I don't see how you can create that hypothesis based out of thin air because there is certainly no supporting evidence. I mean, Ozil, Willock, Ceballos, Ganduzi, Torreira, and Shaka are all ahead of him in midfield. And you're saying, well, I don't believe that. If you don't believe it, it's totally fine. I would just point to the fact that all those players were in this team and he wasn't. Uh, that Ceballos came on ahead of him in the FA Cup. So put, putting that aside, maybe a quick thought on Maitland Niles not being on the team, where things go for him now, and your take on the Suarez signing at least in light of the fact that it seems to be potentially a, a sign of the end for Maitland-Niles at Arsenal. Yeah, it's a very odd one. Um, and you can try and take what you want out of what Arteta said about Maitland-Niles. He said a bit of everything. He said he wanted specialists. That's why Suarez and uh, Mari are here, or Marie are here. Um and then on the other hand, he says it's great to have Maitland-Niles because he can do a bit of everything and he can play basically every position on, on the field apart from goalkeeper and striker. Um, and then he doesn't put him in the team here. And, you know, Suarez isn't even fit yet. So Suarez, well, it wasn't because Suarez was crowding him out of the bench. Ceballos rarely plays and yet he's on the bench. But Maitland-Niles isn't. Um, and I agree with you. I don't... Uh, I love Maitland-Niles in terms of, of his capability, that he's one of our guys, that he, he brings a lot in terms of athleticism, physicality. He can have a great touch. He can be a really good passer. He can make things happen. Uh, I've seen him look promising in midfield. But I also mostly agree we have no basis to conclude that we're that we've brought in a player to help move this guy's career forward in other positions. I just, I don't see it. I don't see it happening. I don't think uh, Arteta is going to have that desire for experimentation with the first team until at least preseason. And my view on Suarez coming in is unless we have injuries and Maitland-Niles is largely done for us until preseason. And then we hit the re restart button and, and see if he can make something happen with 
in uh, Arteta's new paradigm for, for next season. I just don't see yeah. it happening for him. I think Suarez only makes sense to me. There, there, we've talked a lot about the conspiracy theories of why he might be here, none of which are very appetizing. The best reason he should be here is because Arteta wants at least one fullback across both sides. And I think this is, a, again, an informative game. We, we put Chaka on the left um, because we had to. And he ends up being very much a blocking fullback. Well, uh, Arteta wants to be able to look at his bench and get bring on one fullback. And this guy can play apparently both sides. Um, and he can tackle and defend. And he's an out-and-out defender for crosses. And Now, I think Chaka did pretty well. But you could understand the logic of certain games or certain game states like late against Burnley or playing City or Liverpool away from home where you want one side you can lock it down. So you have two centre backs and a full back on the right who can tackle the shit out of whoever they're up against as opposed to having two uh, more creative, more attacking full backs. So I could see him wanting to have that option there. And he's he's basically said that's why he did it. So that that's the logic for me. That's why I hope he's here. I hope his injury pans out to be something um, that we have correctly assessed and he's operational and ready to go shortly after the break here. Otherwise, this is a massive cock up and a waste because Arteta needs players. Yeah. And, and I mean, Clive, I, I don't want to shut you out of a conversation about Maitland Niles. I mean, here's the way I look at it very simply. He's going to be 23 this summer. If you are a 23-year-old player and you have played basically two or three times ever in midfield, you are not making it as a first-team midfielder for that club. Like, I I just think it is fair to say that whatever we think of Maitland-Niles' talent, and I think physically and athletically he has some real talent. There are things he does real well. If he was going to make it as a midfielder at Arsenal, you know, as a 22-year-old who'd be 23 next season, he'd be playing there a bit. He'd be on the bench in this game. He'd be ahead of someone in the pecking order. He'd be given some chance there. I don't see it happening for him. And even if you think, well, but he's a serviceable fullback, I actually agree that he's a serviceable fullback who could make an Arsenal career backing up Bellerin. But loaning a 28-year-old fullback to play ahead of him is a sign that that role is not one that we particularly value him for. So can you escape the conclusion that it, it might be the beginning of the end for him? It might be. I, I generally, I'm a bit perplexed by all of this, um, and I don't. I think there's a story to come out. I don't think it's all out there yet. I mean, even in the squad this week, he didn't make the squad. He didn't make the 19. I, I can't believe that. And if you look at the last couple of games, where he's been on the bench, if you flash to him on the bench, he doesn't look unhappy. He looks really happy. It looks like there's no issue. We sat some players down recently. They're now playing, like Brendan for example. So I didn't sense a stressful situation upcoming like for him with another player coming in in the right back situation. I think he's played really well as a fullback. I, I, I'm maybe not the best person because I've got a slight bias towards this type of player, uh, without you know while recognizing that he can be. Inconsistent passing sometimes makes wrong decisions on passing. It's not a technical issue, it's a concentration issue. Technically, he's brilliant off both feet. He can move, he can dribble, he can drive, he can cross, he can pass. He can Because he can do so much, I think he's actually made his career slightly... Uh, it's a different pathway for him. You know, he's covered us massively at left-back for months, then covers the cruise ship for months at right-back. 
and he's he's done a good job 80% of the time and when he doesn't he's, he's not a fullback any longer I think he's one of those players where I feel he's had a decent Arsenal career but I don't think we've managed his career very well I don't think we've given him the opportunities in the centre of the pitch that Willock has had for example I don't see any difference in the player I don't see anything different I don't see anything that Willett does that Maitland-Niles couldn't do for midfield. I don't see anything that Tobias does that Maitland-Niles couldn't do in midfield. We have just chosen another path. But why do we think this, the recruitment strategy should define what's going to happen to this player? Because we ain't got a clue what the recruitment strategy is. Yeah. You know? I would push so, back just real quick and say I think Tobias is a better short passer. I mean, if, if we're picking, you know, if we're splitting hairs, but keep going. So. Yeah, yeah, but that's just part of the game, right? Yeah. We watched him. We watched him run through quicksand for three months. Yep. Let's be Looked honest, like he was running right? through trouble so, when he came back. Until, until his hamstring popped, right? So, um, and so that's just my view on this. I, I generally don't know how this is going to go. I, I really don't. I, I just my eyes are my spider senses are tingling about this Suarez deal. I think he's a decent player, and I think he could be a, a really good player. There's there's unknowns about Bellerin's situation. There's unknowns about Maitland-Niles' situation. There's unknowns about Suarez's situation. That's the truth. We don't know. Bellerin has started to show something recently. There was rumours of him potentially leaving the club end of last calendar year. So I think the story is going to be told in the summer and maybe Arsenal are future-proofing themselves in some way for that story. And which way it goes, we'll all find out. Mm, yeah, I, I, and I mean, I, I do think that there's always, always a race to know what's going to happen, and I'm guilty of that too, to say, that's it, that's Maitland-Niles' career done, I know it, of course I don't know it, and things can change very quickly. I would say if you're not making the bench um, ahead of a lone player who's hardly played for us in Ceballos, and they've just loaned a 28-year-old at the position where you were getting playing time, certainly to me, that would be writing on the wall. Um you know, and it'd be one thing if he was 18 and you say, well, his time will come. Again, 23 next season. That's that's prime. I mean, the, I, the way they're changing prime every day, pretty soon they're going to be saying prime starts at 17. But like, you know, at, at 23, you should be entering your prime, um, not playing your fifth ever game in midfield for a team. So we'll see what happens. I, I don't think we have to answer that today. We'll say goodbye, but I, I, I want to just really quickly again, hat tip Mustafi, who we've killed on this pod and has been killed on pods and in blogs and he, he's deserved it because he's been bad. But when he's good, he deserves to at least get the praise to say, good job, stepped into a challenging situation and acquitted himself well. I you know, I don't, I don't think Mustafi is the answer to any question for us defensively, and I don't think he has a future at the club. But he's still playing and that he's doing it well. I mean, it's it's a credit to him. You know, we, we talk, have these meta arguments sometimes about fans and fans are good and fans are bad and things like that. But, like, I think what we've seen even this season is if you pull on the shirt and you make an effort, and you put in a good performance, the fans will back you. They want to back you. And we saw that with Shaka, and we saw that with Mustafi, whose name was sung at Bournemouth and then came back from injury quickly, some would argue confusingly quickly, and and started and played played really well at Burnley. So good for him. And, you know, I, all I can say is I hope it continues. It's a good thing for here, Arsenal here. when Arsenal players play well, right? I, I don't think you can turn around and say, well, now he's fixed. Uh, that's not how football works. But when Arsenal players play well, that's good for Arsenal. So great to see it. Um, let's leave it there. Look, we've got plenty of time now over this period for Arteta to maybe try some things, solve some things, figure some things out, understand his squad better. Let's remember, Mikel Arteta took over during the holiday program, the busiest time of the season. 
It's been an avalanche of games and no time to prep and no time to scout and no time to understand. And it's not like he was sitting on the beach when he got hired just watching Arsenal games. He was coaching at another club. So I do think that this is a mini preseason for him. I do think this is a critical period. And then I think what we will see in the run-in is probably a little closer to who he is as a coach and what he wants from this squad because he will now have time to work with them a bit, understand them a bit, um, get them rested and ready and at the fitness level he wants a bit. And hopefully uh, we'll see him go from strength to strength. So we'll leave it there except to say that we will have a a rewatch with uh, Clive this week. We will have uh, analytics pod with Scott this week. We'll have mailbag pods all for patrons uh, this week. We will do regular pod during the two-week break. We'll find a time to do that as well. But if you do want to sign up for Patreon, we'll keep you awash in in podcasts. And we're going to start adding written content to that side of things as well too uh, as we continue to try to find ways to stay uh, engaged with this Arsenal season other than just saying, hey, look, another draw. Paul's on Twitter. Pause in my pants. Thanks, Paz. Clive's on Twitter. Clive P-A-F-C. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. My name's Alex Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review. Write nasty things about Tim and Scott. They'll be back on a pod in the future. But we will take two breaks, uh, two breaks, two weeks off, and then talk to you after Arsenal 10, Newcastle New. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.